Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hi, this is the Cancer Liberation Project podcast. If you've been touched by cancer and have some fear around remaining healthy, you are in the right place. As a 20-year-plus cancer survivor, Haley knows how unsettling it can be to not only hear the words, you have cancer, but also the uncertainty and fear that comes when you have been declared cancer-free. The Cancer Liberation Project was born out of Haley's desire to make cancer less scary for people, to give people hope that they can not only heal from cancer, but live their best, most vibrant life after cancer. Get ready to be inspired with your host, Haley Dubin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. Today, I'm sitting down with Dr. Shawnee Fox. She has such a warm, soothing presence, and I know you'll just love listening to her. Dr. Shawnee has stepped up over and over again to help cancer survivors through their greatest challenges, including taming fear of recurrence, repairing devastated relationships, and making the most of the life they survive for. Bringing her unique expertise as both holistic physician and certified life mastery coach, she has impacted countless cancer survivors with her life-changing workshops and warm personal presence. Dr. Shani is the author of the Cancer Survivors Fear First Aid Kit and is a popular speaker and podcast guest for survivor communities. Her posts and articles have been published in the Huffington Post, Breast Cancer Wellness Magazine, and the peer-reviewed Natural Medicine Journal. I look forward to sharing my conversation with Dr. Shani, but before I do, I just want to remind you, if you're looking for some great cancer prevention tips, go to revivewellness.com. Hi, Dr. Shawnee. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so excited to have you on the Cancer Liberation Project. It's, it's a great pleasure to be here, Haley. You know, first, I really just wanted to hear a little bit about you and how you, you know, transitioned, became a, a, a holistic physician and then kind of moved to, to cancer coaching. Uh, that's a long story, <laughs> but I'll do my best to shorten it. Um, I was working in the corporate world. I was uh, working for a large corporation, and it was giving me a great lifestyle, although I was working very, very hard at the expense of my family. At the time that my daughters went away to college, so I became an empty nester, I realized that this, this job was a great job that I had, but in order to advance, I probably would have had to go and get an MBA, and I found that I had absolutely no interest in doing that, and I said, something is wrong with this picture. So at that point, that prompted me, that was also around the time that my father passed away, the combination of events prompted me to do some examination of what is it I really wanted to do when I grew up. And I realized that, you know, I had been in undergraduate school, I had been a pre-med major. And as I examined this more, I, I realized I was actually still very interested in medicine, but with the lapse of time and having raised children in that gap, I realized that I was actually very much more aligned with 
let's call it holistic medicine um, or natural medicine than I was with conventional medicine in terms of the way I went about things. You know, I was the, the mother who didn't usually give my kids anything for their fevers because I understood that the fever was there for a reason and was burning out whatever was there. I mean, obviously there's a limit to that, but, but in, in most cases. So I realized that I was very much um, aligned with the body's power to heal itself. And that prompted me then to go back to, in my 40s, to go back to medical school, to the naturopathic medical school. And I graduated from there, uh, intending to establish an office practice, which I did actually. As I started to work from the office, what the universe brought me was cancer patients and survivors. About half of the people I saw were cancer patients and survivors. And I realized that there was a lot that I could do for them with natural medicine. Uh, you know, people who are who have survived cancer, they've gone through a conventional treatment, which has lots and lots of side effects and other ramifications, physical and emotional. So natural medicine was great for helping people get rid of whatever symptoms they had left, getting their energy back, you know, the things that they need after, you know, as a follow-up to cancer treatment, and that the system honestly doesn't provide. It's great a treatment, but it doesn't really do follow up very well. So I was doing a lot of that and it was helping a lot of people. And what I realized after a while was that people, even when their bodies and their labs and all that looked great, in other words, the whole world thought they were terrifically well, they didn't feel well. They, they, they could not digest the idea that they were well, essentially. And as I began to experience that over and over, I came to realize that something was going on in the emotional sphere that was keeping people from enjoying their wellness, essentially, enjoying their life after cancer. And as I delved deeper into that, I realized, you know, people need assistance with this. It, it, it's one of these things that people really often need a hand to hold during this period after cancer. You know, they come through treatment and then they come out the other side with, oh gosh, any number of questions. First of all, I don't want that to ever happen again, so what do I do? And then questions like, who, I, who even am I now? Because you know, I was one person going into this, I feel like an entirely different person right now. I may be missing body parts. I certainly have experienced a lot, uh, possibly even trauma emotionally. So, so much has gone on that people don't feel like themselves. And without the resources of the familiar self that they knew before, they're really at loose ends as to how to handle this next chapter. Completely understand. Uh, you know, I went through cancer, ovarian cancer, over 20 years ago now. And I remember so vividly leaving the oncologist's office saying, you know, asking all these questions, what do I do now? Because I just never wanted to go through that again, if I could help it. Right. And I was so fearful. And, you know, basically, he said, go back to living your normal life. I'll see you in three months. And it's, and I know you see this all the time, you know, what do you do with that? It's like, Wow, you know, exactly. I don't know what to do life. next. Yeah, what, what's normal life anymore at that point, right? Um, you know, go back to living your life. I and mean, certainly it, it, it's meant well. It's certainly meant well. They, they want, you know, they're holding a vision of you, you know, being happy and healthy, which is which is terrific. But how you actually get there after an experience like that is a real problem. And because people are just not equipped with uh, new strategies that they're going to need in order to, to live well as their new selves. So um, I realized that was a huge gap and particularly on the emotional end. And so over time, well, the first thing I did was I went to look for resources for people to see if I could help, you know, find, find uh, colleagues to support them. And honestly, at the time I found absolutely nothing, you know, people were um, 
just, I mean, there were just beginning to be some sort of, sort of survivorship programs. And mostly they were about like, you know, get a massage, get yoga, maybe an exercise class. Not that there's anything wrong with any of those things. Those are wonderful things, but that does not address the depths of what's going on here. Those are all healthy things, but they do not address these deeper questions that people have and are trying to get through at the time. So I could not find resources to help people with the questions that they really wanted answered. So that was the point at which I realized, well, you know, then maybe I need to create something here. I certified as a life coach at that point also, and then used the combination of my background in holistic medicine plus the life coaching skills to assist people in, in building this life that they really wanted to be living. Ah, that's incredible. I would have loved to have someone like you when I was just finished with treatment. Um, and I, that's really why I got into the work I did because there was no one, there was no one like me. Um, so when do you typically support people in, in their journey? Is it just after cancer or tell me about that? I meet people where they're at and I, am able to tailor my work to wherever they find themselves on the journey. So I have supported people during treatment when, for example, um, they were having trouble even getting themselves back to treatment. You know, even the, the sights and the smells of the chemo room were too much for them. So they were having traumatic responses even when they needed to still be having treatment. So I've helped people in that situation. And I've certainly helped people as they come out of treatment. In fact, that's probably the majority of, of what the people I work with, but I can I can work with any point in the journey. Uh, it, it's that same issue that when people come out of treatment, they find themselves suddenly on their own and and really need some guidance at that point. And why do you feel like it's so important to work with the fear that people have? You know, I know the stress response is so important. You know, chronic stress leads to disease and, and it's hard to heal, yes. you know, when you are in a constant state of fear. Um, what are you noticing with your, your clients? Well, first of all, let me put this question out for, for you and our listeners here. What is the most common side effect of cancer? Fear. It is fear. And the research supports that actually, because 70%, according to many research studies, 70% of, of survivors are struggling with fear on a pretty persistent basis. That is far more than any other one side effect of cancer, even the famous ones that we know about, right? That, that is the greatest side effect of, and, and residual effect of cancer. And so what's interesting about that, even though it's so common, there's absolutely nothing offered directly to, to survivors, patients or survivors, to deal with it. You know, people who are experiencing, I mean, fear will lead to anxiety, right? So if a person describes anxiety, then they will be sent to a psychologist or psychiatrist and they will be prescribed the medication. Again, everybody means well, but the truth of the matter is, it, it may take the edge off, may take the edge off, but it's only a Band-Aid because there is not a pill in the world that can address fear. So that's the problem. It's, it's, it's an issue which has no medical solution. And therefore people really aren't finding the resources that they need. That's why I stepped into that gap. I love that. I love that. So someone comes to you because they are just ridden with anxiety over a cancer recurrence, that type of thing. Um, or, well, I'm sure it's a lot of things, but I'm assuming, you know, just, just getting back into normal life, they, they're not sure what to do. What is your first, you know, step with them that you take? Yeah, well, that, that sort of describes what, what is going on for people. I mean, you know, the fear may not be present every day, 
But when it comes in, it can be at the very, I mean, it can be debilitating to, to a lot of people. At the very least, it's, it causes anxiety and it can be actually physically debilitating to certain people. So somewhere on that spectrum, a lot of people are finding themselves unable to live life or to take the initiative that it will require to build this next chapter of their life because fear is so present for them. It's, you know, there used to be this little um, comic strip, you know, Charlie Brown walking around the little rain cloud over his head, the storm cloud over his head, his own personal storm cloud. Fear can be like that, you know, it can be always present for a cancer survivor and the people around them, including, um, by the way, usually their medical team often don't see it. Only the survivor is aware of it. And so people are relating as if, you know, it's over now, right? Let's go back to what's, you know, what we used to do. And, and it, it's net, the treatment may be over, of course, but the, the ramifications are not. And they last a long time, if not, if not for the rest of a person's life in one form or another. In other words, a person's always, never, they never stop being aware that they had cancer. It's always present now as part of one's experience. Yes. Yes. I can relate to that completely. Um, I, I definitely don't live in fear anymore, but for a while it, yes. it was definitely there a lot. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what are some short term strategies? Like for example, you're going in for a scan. I know, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of my clients, they're going in for a scan and they're just so worried about it. And, and it's not only worried, like, for that day, but it's days and days in advance. They're just so fearful about it. So what is something that they can, they can do? So my approach to handling fear actually does have two layers. There's a short-term approach and a longer-term approach. In the short term, all the person wants, it's like when you have a headache, you just want that pain to go away, right? So you can function again, right? So I, I approach fear the same way in the short term. In other words, if a person's not functioning that day, it's, if it's so much on their mind that they just find themselves sitting on the couch numb, as opposed to getting out and being with people and, and doing you know things in the world, then they need some um, short-term tools, essentially, in their pocket to know what to do right in that situation. And that's why I wrote my book, the can- or it's, it's actually KIT, the Cancer Survivor's Fear First Aid Kit, which is a short book, a CD, and a workbook, which is meant to let people know, to give people short-term strategy right when that comes up. Okay, here's what you do right away. And the very first thing, by the way, is you pause and you take some breaths. You pause and you take a few deep breaths because that allows the nervous system to settle back to a more grounded place, even like three to five deep breaths. And from there, you, you begin to find the place from which you can make new choices, instead of allowing that fear to come in and sabotage your day. So that's what that kit is about, is you start with your breath, a pause and breath, and then there's four more steps that you can take, at which point you have decided, you're back at the steering wheel and you decide where your day is going, as opposed to fear hanging over like that storm cloud all the time. So that's what that's about. That's the short-term strategy, is just to know what to do in the moment when the fear comes up. And you're absolutely right, the scan, the upcoming scan is one of you know, a few very famous triggers for this sort of persistent fear. Even if a person does well for two and a half months, that last half month before that scan, wow, (laughs) right? Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. and there's a few triggers like that. So it doesn't matter which trigger it is. In any any situation that brings up that anxiety, that's what what those five steps are for. The the only thing is that in, so that's a good set of tools, but in its own way, it's also a band-aid. In other words, if you master those tools, you will be able to use them whenever you need. But the point is that you'll have to do it over and over and over and over and over again, unless we can get underneath of that to the root causes. What, what's going on with this fear anyway? Why is it always uh, stepping in and taking over? 
So we have to get to root causes at some point if we want a sustainable long-term solution. And that's what I do with coaching. Then, you know, as, as you know, we, you know, a person needs to work on that for a little longer time because it, it, it's a matter of developing new habits of thought and behavior when these thoughts come in, these, these intrusive thoughts of fear or any other anxious thoughts. So that takes a longer time. And that's what coaching is for, of course. That, that, that would be a series of, of sessions with a person um, where we the, the whole focus is to um, notice what's going on, notice what comes up physically and emotionally when things go off track with the fear, and then develop longer-term strategies, which put you back into yourself. In other words, not letting you be batted around by the fear, but bring you back to yourself and into your power so that you can say, okay, fear, I know you're here, but move out of my way. I'm living the way I want to live. Yes. You know, that reminds me, coaching is so different than going to a therapist. Um, And a lot of people are confused about coaching. So I'd love you just to address that a little bit and what that entails. Sure, sure. And God bless therapists. They do a lot of good in this world. But the the model of therapy is not really so, um, it's not fully a fit for, for the situation of cancer survivorship. First of all, there are certain issues, as you know very well, that are particular to cancer survivorship. Not just everybody needing therapy has these issues. There's a particular set that cancer survivors deal with. Fear of occurrence is one, there are numerous others. And uh, so unless the therapist is a cancer survivor, him or herself, and has experienced this firsthand, chances are they're not gonna really understand those issues. They'll see you as a human being, they will listen to you, but they really are not going to be able, they don't have strategies in their pocket for these issues because they have not experienced them or and, and have not really focused on uh, on learning them and, 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 and learning to deal with them in their patients, clients. So that's the first thing. There has to be a fit. You know, that person has to, the, the professional has to understand the issues of cancer survivorship. And secondly, therapy is built on a medical model. That, that's partly because of the insurance, et cetera. But the bottom line is a therapist needs to find a diagnosis and the treatment has to match the diagnosis. And that's how the system works. Again, the, that system does a lot of good for a lot of people. But cancer survivorship isn't a disease. It's not a diagnosis. It, it, it's something in their experience that we have to take into account. But it's, it just, it's not a diagnosis. That doesn't mean it's not worth treating or addressing. Let's put it that way. It's not. It's not treating like a condition, but it's a. We have to. We have to deal with those issues. But there's no. There's no code that goes with it. So it just simply does not fit the model of I'm looking for a diagnosis, which then has a specific protocol or treatment, uh, very possibly a medication. Mm-mm, doesn't fit any of that. We've got to. It, it, it's a model where we need to get to underlying causes, see how those causes are affecting the person's current behavior, and then work on establishing new patterns of thought and therefore behavior that work. That's what coaching does. So coaching, the other thing people, it's very well known about therapy, very often goes into the past. And that has great value for certain people. I, you know, again, I don't deny the value of it in certain situations, but for a cancer survivors, that's not really the issue. The past feels good to them. Past is what, you know, what, what they think they want to be, right? So the past isn't the problem. It's the future that's the problem. They perceive that's the problem. So coaching works on where am I now present and into the future, and that present and future orientation is where coaching is, makes coaching an ideal way of working with the issues of cancer survivorship. That's a great explanation because I know people get really confused about that. So I wanted to ask you, you know, because I know my experience just with 
um, losing, you know, I, I would no longer could bear children because I had a total hysterectomy. I had ovarian cancer and I went through this grieving period and, you know, again, there was really no one to address that. No one died, but yet I felt like part of me, you know, part of my femininity did. And I, I, I feared that my, my husband wouldn't want to be with me and, you know, anymore because I can no longer bear children. And thank God we had one healthy little boy. Uh, he was two at the time, but, you know, I know those are things that need to be addressed. Like you mentioned earlier. And I, I know a lot of people too have other emotions like guilt, maybe that they survived or that their, that their spouse had to take care of them and they felt badly about that. So how do you address those kind of things? Well, how, how is a long story, but but what's important to note here is that, yes, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, in addition to fear, guilt is huge, uh, and guilt is no way to live a life. Uh, guilt always has you trying to operate from motives that are outside of yourself, uh, that somebody else wants me to do it or think this way or do this way, you know, and I, I feel guilty because I'm not doing that way. We shouldn't be living our life with reference to some other point of view. We need to live our life from an internally generated point of view, from the one that's authentic to us. And authenticity is essentially the opposite of guilt. So uh, authenticity is one of my very favorite words and principles when I'm working with cancer patients and survivors, because that way, you know, when we, when we get down to what's authentic, that always, even if we're dealing with hard stuff, authentic always feels, I won't say good, but it feels calm. It feels centered. It feels true. And that's where we want to operate from even if we're dealing with stuff that doesn't feel so good. Um, and, and even when we are feel, you know, dealing with things that are good, we want to do it authentically. So that's, that's part of you know, a principle that I use in order to address the guilt piece in particular. Um, and the, oh, the grief, yes. Grief is a huge part of any cancer journey, isn't it? It could be, you know, lost body parts. It could be lost relationships or damaged relationships. It could be uh, the grief over the sense of self that, that f they feel was lost. Um, you know, any, any number of things. And, and like you say, you know, childbearing and, and such issues, body image, uh, all sorts of, any manner of sexual issues, you know, many, many, many. Um, the, you know, yes, there's grief over many, many aspects of this experience. And so, yes, anybody who wants to work with cancer patients and survivors is going to need to deal with, uh, various appearances and ramifications of grief, for sure. Yes. So you mentioned that you work with people in remission and also people who are still dealing with cancer. Do you find that there's a difference in their in their sense of fear? Like, does a cancer survivor who knows they still have cancer, do they come to a realization or do you get them to, to that realization that, you know what, acceptance just moving through what you're going through. Yeah, I mean, acceptance is a useful principle. You know, we, we, we come to that when when a person's ready to come to that. It's not always easy, like you say, that, that the acceptance is, is a challenge. Um, but yes, it, it is true to your beginning of your point there. It, it's very true that people who continue to live with cancer, metastatic or some sort of chronic situation, the cancer is just not going to go away, but you can live with it. Uh, and longer and longer these days, very often, which is a good thing. So, um, so though this set of people has uh, some additional issues in that you know, in addition to the ones we've already talked about, that they've all been through the grief and the guilt and the, you know, uh, the fear. They're dealing with a lot of that. The fear, uh, of course, I mean, the fear of cancer occurrence is essentially a fear about one's own mortality, always. 
So we have to get very honest about that, no matter who I'm dealing with. Um, but it's very much more present very often in the people who are living ongoing with cancer. Um, and so that's, a, that's, that's an aspect of their fear that's going to be part of our conversations. And do you uh, feel like treatment is, is such a big fear? You know, oh, I, I don't want to go through that again. It can be. Can be. Uh, but, you know, it's actually, the fear, again, the fear is about treatment. Well, yes, treatment is hard to go through. So there's the challenge of it. But people usually will take up a challenge if they're hopeful. Um, so it's not so much about the treatment itself. Usually it can be, but it's not usually that. It's much more about what's their overall outlook like. Are they, you know, ready for more life and therefore willing to go through treatment again if needed? Um, or have they given up at some stage? Are they feeling hopeless? That's, that's really the issue, you know, whether or not treatment's in the picture. So we want people to have a sense that life is there for them, that they get to live their lives, that there, there is no such thing as hopeless. Because once a person is hopeless, then they're not really living anymore. Yeah, that is so important. Now, I've heard you speak about post-traumatic growth. And I love that whole concept. Uh, there's just so much. Well, I, I want to say positivity with it, but I do understand that. I don't know if it's a stigma because cancer survivors get frustrated. Like, just be positive. And it's tough to be, you know, just be positive. You need to feel your feelings, right? So mm -hmm. if you could just tell me a little bit about the post-traumatic growth science and all that, I would love to hear that. Sure. Yeah. And, and just before that, to, to address what you just said, you know, I, I bristle also when I hear cancer survivors being told, you know, think positive or be positive. Um, you know, if a person is in a positive state of mind, well, then go with it by all means, you know, enjoy the positivity while it's there. But the fact of the matter is that life after cancer contains a lot more than positive. There are times where, where uh, things are difficult and there are times when they're just nasty. They're just hard. And there's no getting around that. And so, again, I come back to the concept of authenticity that feelings that go with that are always valid. Now, we don't want you to get stuck there, but to feel those feelings, absolutely necessary because only by doing that can we move beyond them. And to, to just, just know that it's all, anything emotional like that is only passing through. In other words, we learn to recognize our emotions and then establish a new state. It does not have to be positive. It simply means to be, needs to be authentic because the authentic will then, allow for the positivity to be generated, but absolutely not to say positive things if you're not feeling positive. No way. <laughs> that is the worst thing I can't. It, actually, it's the worst thing that any of us could do, not just cancer survivors, is to not be true to ourselves in that way. Back to your point, though, about personal, uh, sorry, post-traumatic growth. So the first thing to recognize about this is, you know, P PTSD is actually a complicated diagnosis. It requires a lot of sort of criteria to meet it. Not every cancer survivor has been through PTSD. You know, people will use that term loosely. It won't be strictly true. People don't have PTSD, but they do have some residue of trauma. In other words, if it takes, I think there's four official criteria for PTSD, if I'm not mistaken. You may not have had all four, but you probably had one or two. And therefore, you're going to have a, some, some footprints of trauma on your soul after an experience like this. Absolutely. It, you know, usually it starts right with the diagnosis, honestly, because a cancer diagnosis more often than not comes as a surprise. You know, people, if they had symptoms, they've had them for usually often a very short time and all of a sudden, wow, this diagnosis that's so huge comes out of what feels like nowhere. So they weren't prepared for it. And all of a sudden in that moment, your life changes. You know, the, the definition of trauma essentially is having all your assumptions about the world upended. 
In other words, everything that you thought made life safe, made life peaceful, made life comfortable, everything's just been, you know, the rug's been pulled out from under all of it. And you don't even know what's true anymore. That's what trauma is. And that really is what happens to people, unfortunately, more often than not when they receive a cancer diagnosis. So just about all people who've been through cancer have had, have been, have been through events starting from the diagnosis that have been traumatic in nature. <clears throat> So trauma produces changes in the brain. That, that, that's, we know that, this is science. You, know, you can even see these on MRI. And so once a person has been through that, natural healing can happen, but A, it takes a long time, and B, it means it happens when you are uh, removed from the triggers of the trauma, <laughs> from the memories, for example, or other things like circumstances which remind you of it, you know, before we were talking about the reasons for fear, we talked about the scans as a very common trigger, true. Um, but another one, for example, is if you've been through cancer and you then, let's say somebody else in your circle, a loved one gets diagnosed or even worse, gets re-diagnosed a second time, very traumatic for cancer survivors. They often can't be close. You know, they have trouble going to the same room with that person sometimes or knowing what to say or they feel terrible fear being around this person, even though they love this person. It's another, it's another big trigger. It's, it's, a, it's triggered by trauma, their own trauma, uh, that they cannot then be with somebody else, even though they can relate. But there's, there's a trauma piece to this, which needs to be addressed in order to preserve these relationships often. It just made me think about support groups, because I know a lot of people don't feel great about going to support groups only because there is that issue with someone it has a, a diagnosis that, you know, a recurrence, it came back. And that's, like you said, very traumatic for mm -hmm. people. So I'm just curious what you think about, does that help people going to support groups? Do you think that's a... I, I think support groups are a mixed bag, honestly. Um, you know, it really depends um, how it's run, how this, you know, who's, who's facilitating how it's run. It, there's something wonderful and helpful to survivors about being around other people who have had a similar experience and so really get it, really understand what it's like to go through this. It's very helpful to be heard and recognized by people where you have that in common. So in that sense, being around, you know, being around the others in the support group can be extremely helpful. Where it can go off the rails is if people are allowed to reiterate their stories over and over and over again. And often, you know, when I meet people, I'll very often, if I say, like, tell me something about yourself, They'll start with, well, I had, you know, 20 chemo sessions and 48 radiation sessions. And not that this is funny, I'm sorry. But, it, you know, you hear this so often, it's like you're re-traumatizing yourself <laughs> and people around you. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying people cannot talk about their treatment. Of course, they can talk about their treatment, but that must not be the main theme of the conversation. And by the way, that's not you. That's your treatment that you went through. That is not you. Tell me something about you. <laughs> so, um, so I'm being a little facetious here, but the point is if, if support group allows us allow people to go on and on about the number of treatments that they had now hard, the treatments were and the, you know, the, the, the symptoms and, and how they suffered through it. Again, they need an outlet for that, but the support group may not be the appropriate place because you're traumatized, you're really traumatizing yourself and you're traumatizing everybody around you. So we, I'm exaggerating a bit, but that's exactly what people have told me in many cases. Those people who, who encounter that do not want to go back to support groups. But if the support group is about, we've, we've got in common something that we've been through a real challenge together, 
How can we also hold hands and build our next stage together? That's where support groups can be really useful. And the question is, does the facilitator know how to to facilitate that. I'm sorry, my cat is, everything's good. So yes, support groups can be enormously helpful or, or unfortunately somewhat harmful, and it really depends how they're run. And so back to post-traumatic growth, tell yes. me what, you know, what are the steps? What What's the science behind it? Post-traumatic growth is essentially a process of being willing to process the memories of the experience that was traumatic to you and finding the meaning and ultimately, hopefully the blessings in that experience. Now, I just said a lot (laughs) and I know it's much easier said than done. The very first stage though, is that a person has to be able to process their experience. Now, when we have trauma, the the very first thing the brain does is try to compartmentalize it and hide it away because it hurts. It hurts to think about it or it's upsetting in some way. So the brain for a while is going to compartmentalize it off to the side. That's a sort of a survival skill and it's normal. But if the memories remain compartmentalized, then they're always there waiting to leap out at the worst opportunity. So this is where we see repeated traumatic responses from people, even though whatever happened, happened a very long time ago, let's say. Um, if they cannot get out from under it or from the shock of it, then, and, then it ambushes them and, and, and they continue to have traumatic responses, very uncomfortable uh, and very frustrating. So how, did it, how do you learn to process the memories? The first thing that has to be done is a, a certain cradle of safety has to be created where the person, for example, they're exposed to either a professional or a group of people where it's safe to talk about this. They have to feel very safe. So you establish safety first. There's a lot to that, but that's the principle is you create a safe cradle. And then within that cradle, you give people options for expressing themselves. When I say process memories, it's not just that you have to keep remembering it. What happens is, you have to come back to how the feelings that it brought up and learn to transform those feelings into something new. So that's scary to people to feel those feelings again, Uh, right? They're not gonna wanna do it easily, but so we create safety, we create usually professional, uh, professional hand to hold in some way. And then we slowly and carefully let those feelings express themselves. What's beautiful is that the science of this has discovered there are many ways to possibly do this. You don't necessarily have to talk them out. And that's not necessarily people's easiest way of accessing them anyway. Some people can do it very readily. Some people don't. But things like art, things like drama, things like music, dance, there are many mediums, media, I guess, that people can, that we can be used to help people express what's inside of themselves without having to think of words for it or without having to sit, stew in it. In other words, it, as it comes out, it gets expressed, let's say, through the body right away or through the, the, the artistic hand or um, through role play. You know, in other words, you're, you're speaking, but not necessarily as yourself. So it's another way of allowing it to be said. All of these things can be really, really useful. Journaling, of course, writing. 
Don't want to leave that one out. Yeah, um, all one. of these are beautiful tools. And so if we find one or, or maybe more than one that works for a particular person that allows them to express and allows them to get those feelings out on paper, onto a drawing, onto, you know, out in the world some way, rather than just being stuck into their brain, inside their brain. So you're trying to feel your feelings, but, but not stay stuck in them. Is that exactly. So we create a safe place for people to express their feelings through any, any medium which works for that particular person so that it's, again, yes, it's not stuck. It's not trapped in there. And then as it comes out, as the experience is fully acknowledged, including the feelings that it engendered, then the person can start to usually at that point, they can start to get some perspective on it, take a little distance from it. Oh, I see it. You know, it's like now instead of being inside of me and, and, and agitating my body and my mind, now it's like outside. I can look at it as if it was some object outside of me. It may still raise feelings, but it won't be nearly as severe anymore. And so as I'm able to take to, to examine it and look at it and explore it with some guidance, then we start to realize, okay, Let's, let's think about how things were, how things are now. What have I learned? What has this shown me? What do I know about myself now that I didn't know before? And very often those things can be quite positive. People show enormous resilience, enormous courage, enormous wisdom in coming through this experience. And so they get to start acknowledging that and taking that in. Oh, that's part of me. That, that, that was in there too all along. It's still there. And from acknowledging and owning those pieces of ourselves, then we become re-empowered to take this experience, which is what it is, it's an experience that we had, and let it inform now a life that's actually more powerful than the one we had before, richer in many ways. So any final words to wrap up that you wanna leave with us? Any advice? Well, what I would say to anyone who's out there during, you know, experiencing cancer, post-cancer, um, anybody who is struggling, if you're struggling with this experience, know that help is available to you. And don't stop looking for it until you find it. Because, you know, what, what I can say is actually what you're experiencing, it's not at all pleasant at times, but it's normal. You know, we, we would be not real people if we went through experiences like this and didn't feel the fear or the guilt or the, you know, everything else that goes with it. These are normal human emotions. So yes, it's not easy, very challenging, but it is at some level normal. And so find the help you need to just, to uh, learn to take what you got there and transform it into something that will serve you for the rest of your life. Cause that is absolutely possible. There's absolutely hope for you. And your life will be very much richer and very much more fulfilling as you step through that process. There, there are people who can help you do that. Do not stop looking if you need it. Uh, that's a powerful message. And, you know, that's what this whole thing's about, just giving people hope. Yes. You know, that they can live a great life after cancer. Yes. Yes. You're certainly an example of that, Haley. Oh, thank you so much. And if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do so? What's the best way? Sure. The very easiest, very easiest way is to go to my website, drshanifox.com. So D-R-S-H-A-N-I-F-O-X.com. Uh, there are resources there 
Um, there you'll find access through, through my website to the Cancer Survivors Fear First Aid Kit, if that serves you, or to my private Facebook group for women. I call it Women Rising Beyond Cancer. Uh, there's, there's access there to join my private Facebook group where we talk about the parts of cancer that not everybody wants to talk about. Uh, but everything goes in that group. We can talk about absolutely anything. And there's lots of uh, support and acknowledgement and celebration that goes on there. Um, so support's available and that's all available without any obligation or fee. That's great. That feels like a good support group for sure. For sure. So are you ready for some random round questions? Sure, sure. (laughs) So fill in the blank. Freedom to you is? Having the resources to do whatever I choose to do. And that could be, I mean, when resources, we think of uh, of finances, it's that, but it's also time. It's also energy. It's also physical well-being. It's also emotional well-being, the, the, having the wherewithal to do anything that I choose to do with my life. Great. What is the last show that you binged and loved? Oh, (laughs) the very last one was atypical on Netflix <laughs> about a, an autistic teenager trying to navigate the world beyond high school. It's, it's quite beautifully played and I enjoyed it every last moment of it. Okay. I didn't hear of that one. So I'll have yeah, to. It's really good, Haley. I recommend it. Oh, great. Thank you. Thank you. If you could have a one hour discussion with someone past or present, who would that be and why? Uh, I think I, I, there's many I could choose from. Some of them are not living, but I'm going to choose one of them who is living because this person embodies the same thing as those others did, those other idols of mine. Um, it's Dr. Rachel Remen. Dr. Rachel Remen um, was, I believe, a pediatric oncologist or pediatric surgeon. Uh, anyway, he, she treated children um, for her entire career. She had a very distinguished career, but she herself was a lifelong medical patient. She had a chronic condition that required uh, very significant treatment from the time she was, I think, a teenager or certainly in her 20s. So she knows the world of medicine from both the side of a doctor and from a patient, a lifelong patient. And she is a pioneer in introducing courses to medical students about the art of medicine because she believes it's at least as much an art as a science. Uh, she has she did most of her work at University of California, San Francisco, a great hero of mine, um, and I would love to sit down with her. Oh, that's great. And what is your favorite go-to snack? Like <laughs> wasabi peas. <laughs> They're dried peas with a little wasabi coating on them. I love those. <laughs> That's great. It's so funny because I just did this with someone else who said wasabi almonds, which I've never had. Oh. I had wasabi peas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And wasabi has anti-cancer properties, by the way. Everybody should know. <laughs> yes. Yes. Great. Yeah. And what is one simple thing that brings you joy? Oh, there are so many things that bring me joy. In fact, I, I spent a whole year, uh, which I called my year of joy, learning how to generate joy. So I'm actually an expert on this topic. Um, I mean, I can give you an example, but there are so, so many. Um, you know, one, one simple, simple thing that gives me joy is sitting on my sofa with a warm cup of tea and looking out my sliding doors at the bird feeder and just watching the birds at the bird feeder. It's so simple and it's so profound. It's just the, the loveliest way to start the morning that I can think of. What's on your nightstand? 
on my nightstand is my sunset alarm clock, which, uh, you know, brings the light up and brings the light down like a sunrise or sunset in the morning or evening, respectively. There is um, a notebook where I write certain things down last thing at night. I, I like to have a little bit of practice before I go to bed in terms of gratitude and other things. Um, so that notebook with its pen is there. Uh, and very often, uh, and a pair of reading glasses these days. <laughs> Fair enough, right? Yes, absolutely. Life, right? Yes, and and usually a, a book that I may have been reading, and there's often a book sitting there that I've been dipping into. And what's your favorite form of exercise? I have been doing yoga for about 27 years now. I, I absolutely love yoga. And my other favorite form of exercise, I cannot not mention this, is dancing. I'm, I'm a lifelong dancer, and I uh, hope to be dancing as long as I live. What's one thing you're really grateful for in your life right now? Right now. There are, again, so many. So, But I'll tell you one thing, because she just reminded me. I have a 22-year-old cat. And this cat has been my companion through lots of things in, in life. Um, but most recently, of course, COVID. And so I am so grateful for this being who's hanging out here on planet earth way beyond the average lifespan of a cat in order to be my companion through a very difficult, you know, I should say challenging. I, I, there was a lot of blessings that came out of the COVID period for me. So I'm not saying it was totally difficult, but there were challenges nevertheless. And she has my, been my companion through all this. And I am totally grateful for her. So grateful. Oh, this has been just such a pleasure. Thank you so much. And I love the work you're doing. Thank I, you for what you do in the world as well, Haley. Thank you so much. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so will really help this podcast get noticed and will help us to inspire more people. And remember, the sky is the limit when you take your power back when it comes to your health. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.